Over the past year, the conflict in Ukraine has dominated headlines day after day. After all, we're looking at one of the most consequential and tragic events in contemporary history. But while the Ukraine conflict is raging on, the Middle East also remains as a very important geopolitical theater. Most recently, the world was transfixed by China's growing diplomatic muscle in the area, particularly bringing Saudi Arabia and Iran together and also pushing for a more peaceful solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, among many other initiatives that China has in the Middle East. But perhaps the most consequential development in our era, not only over the past five years or past year or so, is the rise of China. Just the sheer speed and breadth of China's rise has forced everyone, including the reigning superpower United States, to have a proper strategic reflection. This is very much reflected in how China has dominated foreign policy and even domestic political discourse in America. And we also saw how during the 2016 elections, China became more and more central to the foreign policy discourse in the major political parties in America. And from the Donald Trump administration to the Biden administration, we see a consistent direction in terms of America giving more and more attention to the rise of China. And soon the Americans are going to go back to the polls to decide not only the future of American presidency, but also the future of what is largely seen as the most important bilateral relationship of the 21st century, namely the US-China relations. But while there is a lot of bipartisan consensus on the need to make sure that America is prepared to compete with China, the debate on how to deal exactly with China is far from monolithic. If anything, in the Republican Party alone, there are different strands and different ways to understanding how to best to deal with China. On one hand, there are those, especially in the Biden administration, who believe that the United States, yes, it should focus on China, but it also has obligations in Ukraine. It also has obligations to a number of partners and allies in other critical theaters like the Middle East. There are also those in America, like former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, who believe that America has to develop a less confrontational approach towards China. That managing the appetites and aspiration of a rising superpower like China is extremely crucial to determining the future of the global order, a peaceful order, and preventing another world war. But there are also those who believe that the United States should take a quite a different approach, namely, not so much focus on promoting democracy, promoting its values, and working with other democratic allies and protecting other allies, but to focus on its own national interests and primarily also zero in on the rise of China and how to effectively deal with that. In as much as they believe it's important to show solidarity with Ukraine, with partners and allies in the Middle East, they believe that the Philippines and allies in Asia should be front and center as far as American foreign policy is concerned. They believe that countries like the Philippines were not taken as seriously throughout the decades and perhaps it's important for America to really zero in on China by also building strong coalitions in this part of the world. And that's exactly where the Philippines is very important. So today we have a special guest who is very familiar with these internal debates in America, particularly in the Republican Party. This is someone who has contributed directly to the development of America's strategy towards China and great power rivalry in the century, and is someone who also believes in a stronger Philippine-US alliance. 
And by all indications, this is perhaps also someone who could play a very important role in the American government should someone from the Republican Party become the next occupant of the White House. His ideas were very influential in shaping the Trump administration policy, but many believe that his ideas are also being adopted by top contenders for the Republican nomination and potentially the presidency next year, namely people like Florida Governor DeSantis. In short, there's a very lively and spirited debate, not only between the parties, but within major parties within the United States. And this has a lot of implications for U.S. allies, especially the Philippines. We're joined by no less than Elbridge Colby, someone who played a very important role in the Trump administration and someone who could also play a very important role should another Republican occupy the White House next year. When you were contributing to the national defense strategy, like kind of Russia and China were considered separate, you know, essentially yeah. challenges. But now there's increasing discussion that the two are coming together. Right. Now, we know the backstory. The two are not necessarily fans of each other. I mean, they have a lot of concerns with each other. You go to parts of China, there are museums about what the Tsarist Russia right. was doing to them. You go to Russia, they're very worried about what China could do in the Siberian region, mm -hmm. where there's the population dynamic is really not helpful for Russia. Uh, not to mention many cultural factors, etc. we can discuss. And the Russians really not liking the fact that they have to give up a lot of whatever left they have in terms of high-end technology, mm -hmm. right? And fighter jets and all. Nevertheless, it looks like the situation is desperate enough. And the Chinese are, you know, uh, they're sophisticated enough to make the most out of this. Are we really looking at an axis here? Or this is kind of a alliance of inconvenience that is a Putin sheathing rather than a two giant countries coming together? I think it's I think it's an alliance, effectively. I mean, I mm. think it's as much an alliance... Of, Even if China has not given major weapon systems to them or anything? Yeah, like because... Um, look, I think it's an alliance in the sense uh, that you would have used the term before probably the First World War or possibly the right. Second World War. Um, and in some respects, I mean... You know, I mean, in sort of the sense that the United States and India are likely to become, although probably a closer political relationship in the case of Moscow and Beijing. Um, I mean, I think the expectation is that both will take care of their own security. They're not going to be dependent on the on the other. Right. But the other thing, just particularly on that question, is I don't. I mean, the Russians obviously would benefit from Chinese lethal aid, but the, by far the most important thing the Chinese are doing is propping up the, the Russian economy. And then the Russians, of course, have a very large military industry. So they really, and the, the Chinese are facilitating semiconductors and these kinds of things. So, I mean, and, you know, you can see, I mean, Xi Jinping was locked down for COVID for three years. Where does he go? He goes to Moscow. He spends five days there. He says at the end, chumminly, you know, changes are afoot that haven't yeah. happened in 100 years. Here's the thing. <clears throat> I think we need to essentially assume that this is an alliance for, for at least the foreseeable future. Putin's successor may decide to pursue a more important, uh, independent course, and we should be prepared to exploit that. But I don't think we can count on it. Um, the fact that they are so aligned makes focus on Asia all the more important. Because 10 right. years, 15 years ago, if Hu Jintao had said, um, you know, Vladimir Putin, can you create a distraction in Europe uh, so that we can go after Taiwan? Vladimir Putin would have laughed at him and said, that's ridiculous. I'm doing these things with Obama, the reset yeah. or whatever. I mean, or Medvedev. Or Medvedev or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Five years ago, even if he'd said it, he'd say, look, I, you know, I know we're on similar pages, but yeah. that's a bit much. Maybe I'll create a little bit of noise, but I'm sorry, I can't really help you. Today, first of all, he is in a war distracting the Americans, right. depleting the Americans, which is great for China. Um, and secondly, I think 
I think Putin would have a lot of, uh, how much standing would he have to say no to Xi Jinping? Right. I mean, it's their lifeline. I mean, I was looking on Twitter from a very smart guy, you probably know, Sasha Kabuev, who was saying, right. you know, showing how much more and more de- in- dependent the Russian economy is on China. And the same holds true with Iran, where the relationship among these guys is getting closer. So, I mean, saying it's like the Axis has a kind of comic book effect, but I think what we, or sort of idea that I, that's not what I want to connote, but what I think we need to be prepared for is that if the Chinese are prepared to confront the United States directly, which they appear, they are, I mean, they're building up a nuclear force they're trying to sanction-proof their economy, then they're going to make our life as difficult as possible by distracting us all over the place. And this requires that we not be distracted. We need to focus here on the first island chain. And going back into this issue of China gaining commandingly a lot of critical technologies, what do you think about the Biden administration, semiconductor sanctions, etc.? Because the reason I'm emphasizing is that we discussed Singapore kind of tangentially a while ago, but Singapore is a country that is supposed to be kind of a conciliary of America sometimes for ASEAN and sometimes they speak in behalf of Used all to of be. I, don't know. I mean, again, yeah. sometimes they yeah. speak in behalf of all of us when it's like, you can actually talk to us directly. You know, <laughs> right. you, you yeah. don't have to ask these Singaporeans yeah. about what Filipinos think, but yeah. putting that aside, um, but my sense is since especially last year, once this semiconductor sanctions were coming in, Singaporeans are feeling the squeeze because, mm-hmm. you know, they're very integrated in the Chinese mm-hmm. economy. They have huge stakes in that. And now suddenly their tone is quite critical of America, sometimes very openly critical mm-hmm. of America, which is like, I mean, you, if you listen to Singaporeans very Malakrishna and Mishang, uh, to this year, and compared to two years ago or early months of Biden, it's like totally two different mm-hmm. countries, right? It, it sounds like that. Yeah. What is your reading of this situation? Well, I think they are reflecting what appears to be a and genuine... And the semiconductor sanctions yeah. also. Like, yeah, well, yeah. It, what appears to be a genuine Chinese um, perception that we are, I mean... Xi Jinping himself has said that we are trying to strangle them. Um, and the, the, rea- the rejection note from General Li Shangfeng to Secretary Austin's request for a meeting said something to the effect that we are trying to contain and suppress them right. and hold down their development. Um, obviously, some, of this, or some, some amount of this is, is shaping and propaganda, <clears throat> but it appears to be pretty genuine. I mean, Xi Jinping the other day at the National Security Commission meeting was, right. was telling people to be prepared for extreme scenarios and, you know, kind of, et cetera. So, I mean, to your point, I, I think they've given up on us. What I am afraid of a little bit is I, I support essentially totally in principle the semiconductor sanctions. What, <laughs> what I don't want to have repeated is a situation in which we press hard at the rhetorical level. And there's also these political things happening, including the, the deepening of the alliance here, but also the Quad, AUKUS, all these loud things happening, which persuade China that we are trying to contain them and hold them down, fairly or not. And that may give them more of an incentive right. to lash out. Now, that doesn't mean just sitting around and not letting them do anything. That's the worst course of action because then China will clearly bully all of us. I mean, we know that. You know that intimately. So we have to strengthen our position. My view, though, is we should speak softly and carry a big stick, to, to, to quote right. the Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt thing, or hit the gym and not talk so much smack on the, on, right. on the microphone yeah. beforehand because I fear that we're doing a lot of loud things, some of which make sense, some others don't, and we're not quite, you know, we're not, there are things that are very positive that are happening, like EDCA, like what we're doing with Japanese. There is more focus on Asia, but China, again, 7% increase in defense spending this year. Nuclear buildup, ship, I mean, their Navy is already larger than our own. And if you look historically, and Neil Ferguson has made this comparison, 
you know, why did the Japanese decide to strike in December of 1941? Well, a lot of it was the oil embargo. Yeah, and they felt that that, that was, the, and, and again, not that we approve or <laughs> supported what they did or not, I'm justifying. So don't corner the beast. That's what you're saying. I, my view, again, if we go back to the kind of Nixon approach is you got to give them a bet. You, you want to present them with, or Eisenhower, you want to present them with a firm wall right. in the first island chain that they do not feel that they can advantageously right. move against. But they also have an opportunity. So, that, so actually in my book, which is all about strategy of denials, about denying their ability to project military power, the last chapter is actually aimed at the Chinese. It's called A Decent Peace. It says what we are, I do not, and I differ with a lot of Republicans about this. Look, I don't, I hate communism, but our goal is not to change the Communist Party. Our goal is not to turn. Not regime not to, change. Yeah, it's not yeah. regime change. It's not humiliate China. If the strategy of denial is successful, China will be one of the two superpowers of the world. It will have enormous influence. It will command respect, but it will not be able to dictate to us and to the countries that are allied with us in what I call the anti-hegemonic coalition. Countries that are in, decide to be in China's sphere, that's going to be a different story. North Korea, maybe, you know, who knows? Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, yeah. exactly. Pakistan, yeah. uh, et cetera. That's, that's going to be a different story. We can't solve all the world's problems. But if you're China and you're saying, well, my number one option would be to be the king of the world and dominate everybody. But if I pursue that, there's a real risk that I'm going to throw everything over. Option two that Bridge is describing is actually not so bad. That's, that's my pitch. Do you think China has already set its sight on a specific strategy? I mean, is there really a grand strategy aside from making sure Americans don't dominate our adjacent waters, which for many sounds reasonable. I mean, you wouldn't want the Russians or Chinese dominate. Because sometimes yeah. you get suspicious of some people who claim to know what Xi Jinping is exactly thinking, considering there's a lot of dialectical dynamics here. I mean, right. you don't have to be a Marxist to understand that Xi Jinping appreciates Mark Hegelian right. dialectics <laughs> very much, right? Kevin Rudd, among others, yeah. have noticed that right. a lot. Well, I mean, totally. In fact, my analysis is not really based on an assessment of what Xi Jinping actually thinks. Or that there's the no hundred year marathon. Well, here. I, I, I mean, so you take the arguments of people, you know, people I respect, like Mike Pillsbury, but also you know, people yeah. like Rush Doshi, Matt Pottinger, and John Pomfret have made this argument. My argument is deductive and structural. I fundamentally, I think that China is behaving like a typical rising great power. So it's you know, Graham Allison has this kind of view, which is to say, it has a John Mearsheimer. It right. has a strong reason to seek more security and dominance, dominance. In, its own, in its own area because it's good it's good to be the king right yeah but i'm i don't think it's inevitable that's why i'm i'm advocating right. for the positions because i think we can shape their incentive structure now what i do see from other people who watch what the chinese say more suggests that they do have a pretty strong plan i mean this is a communist government in some ways five-year plans made in sure. china 2025 2039 uh, 2049 2034 they have a lot of these Plans, yeah. plans, but I don't think there's, I mean, Mao himself was famous for adapting and changing and so forth. So I don't believe that they have like an adamantine right. fixed. On the other hand, Xi Jinping himself personally, now the military buildup they're doing and the ba basing structure suggests they have grand ambitions. Xi Jinping himself personally su suggests to me a guy with a man of steel kind of right. Personality, his life result, experience, his life yeah. experience exactly. The traumas they went through, yeah. Personal, all the more the traumas, yeah. exactly. I think yeah. our, it hasn't been easy. He's not just the silver spoon. In the, I mean, he really went through it, and he's been committed. And look how he's purged the own and and come to dominate his own structure. Right. That worries me. This is a this is a man who will not be easily deflected, 
And I think that's the impression that Chinese give. So, so I, I would say I'm not, I don't believe war is inevitable, but I believe it's a very serious risk. Right. And it will take a lot of, of effort and focus for us to deflect him from that course. I, I mean, personally, for me, one, th- one, one thinker that helps me a lot to understand China is Antony Gramsci, right? Yeah. And not from, from a cultural stand, from a yeah. military stand. It's been a while since I've Yeah, right. The war yeah. of position versus yeah. war yeah. of maneuver. I think yeah. definitely the Chinese are putting themselves in the proper war of positioning. Exactly. Yeah. Position but, is so critical. But the maneuver part, they're not deciding on that. I mean, that's essentially how I understand Taiwan's situation. They're, they're trying to put themselves in yeah. a position where they can respond. But yeah. I don't think that decision has been made or will be made anytime soon. I, I agree and with much you. much of that yeah. depends on how we approach I mean, to be even exactly. German about it, it's like kite. I mean, there's yeah. a... They're embedded in kind of a how you know it's alignment of forces. They want to analyze. It. I, I actually agree with you. There was a, there was a, a, a poll that was done by one of the uh, I think CSIS on, among people working on China asking about all the Taiwan stuff, right. and they asked, "Do you think Xi Jinping has made a decision, or do you have a fixed plan?" And I said, "No." Yeah. I was actually in the minority. I think, which is surprising. Which is surprising, right? Like, but 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 the reason that's, that yeah. I'm so fervent about it is I believe that we can actually affect. Yes. His calculus it's and position is exactly yeah. right because position, especially in an era of missiles and high technology where you can't hide, if you're if you place yourself in a strong defense, it's very right. difficult to dislodge you. Right, right. Right. And I mean, we'll see that in the Ukraine, but it depends on who. But I mean, in general, the American satellites, everything, missile defense is good. So so position is critical. So I, the other the historical analogy I like and German as well is Bismarck, right? Where you're trying to position and you're looking for an opportunity and you understand that conflict may be inevitable, but you want to, or not inevitable, but may be advantageous, right. but you want to put it in a position where you don't pay as many costs. That's what I'm worried about is, is think Bismarck and what, I mean, think about this just in terms of what could happen in Asia. I mean, think for hundreds and hundreds of years, going back to all the wars of the 18th century, uh, the wars uh, against Louis XIV, the Thirty Years' War, going back to Charles V, etc. It had been a fixed verity of, of French and ultimately, and as well as British foreign policy, never right. to let the center of Europe to be consolidated because it would be too powerful. That had always been. And Bismarck upended that with three short, relatively small wars and, and had a systemic effect right. that drama- and that essentially created the, the tragic history that followed World War I, World second, War II, second, second World, and ultimately yeah. the Cold War, was in a sense rooted in that. By The British didn't even realize Napoleon was on, Louis Napoleon was on, or at least stayed out of the Franco, of the, um, the Austro-Prussian War, which created this power in the middle of Europe that was too strong. I mean, not to get into the history, but the people think a Taiwan conflict, oh, this would be just a thing about Taiwan. No, 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 no. It could right. be a thing that could settle much less much, much more because if the American military were defeated, that would have cascading effects that could have massive systemic effects for a conflict that's much smaller than World War II. Yeah, it's fascinating. We're, we're, we're quoting a lot of uh, European thinkers and figures while saying we should forget about Europe and move to Well, to but the Asia. logic, see, to me, I get flack about this, but I personally don't think there's strategic culture. Like, I don't think there's a Chinese unique, or yeah, It's based yeah. like... Strategy is Darwinian. Yes. If, if aliens came and we, we, right. the way they this would is operate... Edward Lufa. Yeah, well, I'm, I love Edward. Exactly. You know, he's he's yeah, affiliated yeah. with that. But yeah. I mean, in the sense that I don't buy this idea that the Chinese do things in a very... Very unique way. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. The, yeah. They're, they're going to do things... And I mean, I think, you know, also the Chinese, yes, they read Sun Tzu, who, by the way, is probably yeah. mistranslated. But also, they're Leninists. They read Clausewitz, yeah. of course. That just makes sense. Right. And Marxist. You know? And Marxist, too. German. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, so. and Mahanian strategies... Yeah. 
feeding into what they're there doing right now. Exactly. There so you go. they're actually learning a lot from yeah. you guys. Yeah, I mean, look, animals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, apes, penguins. Yeah, mammals, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they actually... Yeah, mimesis. They yeah. follow yeah. strategic logic. You right. know, I mean, like apes mark their territory, single, they form alliances. It's classic strategic it's learning. strategic, yeah. They yeah. have the strategic culture, I guess, like we all do. There's American strategic <laughs> culture. But at the end of the day, Great if your strategic powers. culture is not yeah. good enough, right. you're not going to survive. Right. Now, let me be a little bit parochial as we go right. towards the end of this conversation because I actually want to end on American elections, okay. some of the people that I think we want to talk about. But let me be a little bit more parochial. What is your understanding of this whole EDCA thing? Are you happy with what's happening with the Philippines right now? Some are saying that Philippines is now like the new star ally of the United States, or at least it's a huge yeah. shift from what we had at least in the early years of the Duterte administration where the Philippines perhaps should have got the gold medal for loyalty to China and ASEAN, right? Like yeah, the way Duterte talked about China would, you know, put Hun Sen to shame. Uh, forget yeah. about some of the other people. How do you feel about this transformation? Well, I think it's incredibly important. And, and your I, visit here to Manila, Yeah, well, yeah. That, and part of the reason I'm here is I think what's happening is is enormously important and commendable and the, 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 the government here uh, the, it deserves enormous credit. I think you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not a Filipino, but again, I, it, it, given that I, I feel like it's strategic rationality, I feel like I can say, look, if I were sitting in the Philippine shoes, that's the smart course. Um, but it, t- it took a lot of political vision and courage. So I, I really applaud that. All I would say is I think, look, we don't want to in this situation where the Chinese, as we were just talking about, are calculating right. and are very strong and are ruthless and are not easily going to be deflected. Being half pregnant is a bad idea. Half measures are dangerous if we go back to the thing about... So you're saying the Philippines cannot hedge? I, like, or should I, it hedge? Yeah. No, I think hedging, if, if you go back to my logic, I think he- hedging doesn't make sense in the sense that geopolitically and from a defense perspective, I would not hedge because you are too important. You're right there in the middle of the first island chain. You know, the line I use is, you know, the Trotsky said, uh, you may not be interested in the revolution, but it's interested in you. Right, well, right. Ch- because of your geography and your importance as an economy, you may not be interested in the, in the China. Neutrality is not an option. Not tri- so if it's you're not, not going to be neutral, you're too important, then pick a side and make sure you're not no man's land. That's the worst place right. to be if you're in the middle. Sw- Switzerland used to be able, because it was built on high mountains, right? Because right. people wouldn't want to go up there. Philippines is different. So I think p- geopolitically, on the other hand, economically, I think we can all keep trading with the Chinese. Because and, one of and the, the U.S. is not in a position to offer us what we, we need. That, right? And the U.S. trying to trade is at an all-time high, according to Jake Sullivan. Yeah. So, so I don't, I'm not saying stop all Chinese investment. Now, you should be aware that there's risk. This is what I tell American businesses. Right. You should be aware if there's a conflict with China, who knows? You know, there's going to be a huge risk premium. Look what happened to McDonald's, which was not sanctioned in Russia. So bear that in mind. And I think we should do efforts towards diversification. And this on this level, I think the administration's approach seems about, you know, it's pretty sound in the sense that, so you're happy with how the Biden administration is approaching Marcos? Well, what I was going to say is more yeah. on the on the focus on decoupling. I mean, I think the optics of the relationship seem pretty positive. Right. I would probably be more supportive, and I would put more so you want investment the in the U.S. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, what does what I'm saying is like it's fantastic self. Because I would be more prioritizing Asia. I would say the Philippines is one of our most important alliances in the world, and not sure. just hundred million. Dollars right. for a meter. Yeah, why are we giving a billion bucks to Egypt or whatever, or and, Pakistan, and, or, Pakistan or, Jordan, or, yeah. or, or 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 Ukraine itself? When you're not in a war now, but you could be very quickly. Very and soon. there's Taiwan, which is closer to us than any right. it's major miles Asian from country. the northernmost. Philippi- right. So I, yeah, that's what we want to hear. I think in the Philippines. We well, just, no, I'm not just. I uh, trust me. I tell the Europeans, I'm not popular in yeah, Europe, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so you can check my work. I say the same thing elsewhere. But for all we know, this this would be the argument. In fi- I mean. 
I remember very well in the early 2010s. Yeah. If you took a, the stance that you and I are taking yeah. on China, that was the minority position. Yeah. It's like, okay, this guy is a little bit. And then within fears, you realize, oh, you were ahead of time. Exactly. And now suddenly you're the blob. Which is like, <laughs> well, see that right? That makes me uncomfortable. But I, I would say that's that's actually a very important point because this is something I thought about a lot when right. we were doing the strategy in the Pentagon. <clears throat> is if you're going to be someone like us who's a strategic thinker, hopefully, um, in my case, certainly in your case, um, you have to be sufficiently ahead of the problem to be able to rectify it. Ahead of the herd. On the other hand, what the pivot shows, and Kissinger has right. a great line about this. In a sense, I, I mean, I wish they could have been more successful, but maybe they were too far ahead. Right. So, so uh, you know, if you're if you're out in the wilderness too much, and so what I'm trying to do in in my and I certainly take a lot of risk and I take a lot of arrows from people, but I think momentum is moving in my direction. And right. I think part of the reason that I is that I'm not. I mean, not to be self-referential, but I'm not out there saying we should abandon all of our alliances, you know, or something like that, or we should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people can say, ah, and that, forget morality and yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. exactly that, yeah, yeah. What he's saying is connecting something that's clear, but he's trying to head of the curve, right? And it's in the same way, if you're investing, if you're investing a day, if if we're only waking up to the Taiwan problem the day before, that's too late. Last part of right. the, I mean, I, we can go on forever. I just realized. <laughs> yeah. I think for the first time, it's like maybe this is how it feels to interview me. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, like, that's right. Next like, time, I'll do this. This is finding. Yeah. I'm finding like the energy and yeah. the excitement, etc. Well, we care, right? No, I, I, yeah. This is great. Yeah. Um, Elbridge, yeah. let me ask you. Um, obviously, you don't have to answer everything yeah. I'm, I'm going to say. U.S. election is, for by all per- means, the purpose has already started, right? Yeah. And, and it looks like in your party, it's really going to be the scientist Trump kind of uh, breakdown. Mm-hmm. And, and you have worked with the Trump administration, played a very important mm-hmm. role. There are reports that, you know, the scientist has thought your advice. And, well, it looks like either way, whoever wins, if ever a Republican wins, you will be in a prime position to influence the next administration. Again, you don't have to uh, confirm it, but, but this is the talk of the town. Can you explain to me what is the difference between a DeSantis presidency or Trump presidency? Uh, I made it very clear. I didn't say he shows one side. See, so, uh, you know, I'm being fair. Yeah. Um, can you explain to yeah. us outsiders... What is the difference between a DeSantis approach to foreign policy and a Trump 2.0 approach to foreign policy, if, if indeed there's an evolution in Trump approach? Well, um, as a Republican, how a do Republican. you explain that? Um, yeah. Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. <clears throat> um, and I, I make no, no, no uh, predictions or pretension <laughs> about, about what sure. would happen to me. Sure. But I will say, whatever, uh, whatever happens, I, I intend to have a voice. And uh, right. so, you know, I, I intend to keep pushing uh, the arguments that I'm pushing in whatever capacity. Um, you know, I end up or uh, on the outside, or or if if if, uh, if it works out on the inside. Um, what I would say is, I think the way you could say you could kind of map out the the debate among Republicans is um, at one extreme you have the what you could call the the, the sort of legacy neoconservatives, and they are very powerful in the established positions, particularly in the Senate to some extent in the House. But bear in mind that these people were some of them were elected forty years ago. You know, 30, 20 years ago, many, uh, many of them essentially, they're, they're not only not in sympathy, they're hostile to the sort of revolution in the party that Donald Trump initiated in 2016 right. that, that, that tapped into what the voters feel. So and most pre- Republicans. 2016. Pre- exactly. Yeah. Now, they are very loud right now and they're very influential because, in a sense, especially our Senate is a, and the seniority system in the House is essentially a, a lagging indicator, but right. deliberately. Right. Um, on the other extreme, you have uh, a, a part of the party that frankly is very powerful, particularly in the, among voters and a lot, a lot of voters, but also among young 
Republicans and conservatives, including in the intellectual ferment, which is more right. what you might call restraint. I think the term isolationism is a bit of a, of a canard. So yeah, they're, they're kind of a like, pejorative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I was struck there. I was interviewed in an article on the kind of new Republican thinking a few months ago. And I was struck by the um, comment from another person who's very influential in conservative intellectual life. He's a younger guy. Um, but he basically said, everybody I know in their 20s or 30s who's a new right thinker is laughs at neoconservatism or intervention. They're all counter because they, they're the kind of the product of Iraq and the failures. And so you have these 80 year olds over and, here and who did not own up to it. Did not own up to it. And so they're, that's, they're, th that's the world they're that's living the in. Right. Yeah. I would describe my position as kind of, I mean, I, you know, I don't like to think I'm a moderate in, in general, but in this case, it's a golden mean, um, which is between those, which is <laughs> right. taking the, in, the correct insight of the, of the old school, which is that you cannot hide from the world and the United States is, has a special role because of how powerful we are. And of right. course, you know, the arsenal of democracy and all that sort of thing. So we should, and, and the importance of alliances, but also the other side, which is saying, look, we shouldn't be getting in these unnecessary wars. We shouldn't be trying to solve all the world's problems. We should try to avoid conflict where possible. To me, the middle course, which I think is where a Republican president would tend to end up. Right is that kind of enlightened self-interest. Now, they wouldn't necessarily use the terminology that I'm using. You know, Richard Nixon did not stir people's hearts. Dwight, we don't remember Dwight right, Eisenhower's right. speech. Well, we right. remember one of them. But you would get a different rhetoric. But I think the behavior... Right. And the instinct. Yeah, instinct and, yeah. And so the strategic, because of the nature of the strategic reality, right. which is that this is the world, and, and they're not going to have the nostalgic sort of sense that Biden has for Europe. It's a very Eurocentric administration. Right. And the second thing is that Republican voters are very focused on China. Much uh, Democratic voters have moved on that issue towards right. Republicans, but Republicans are like way, way China's the primary threat. And there's not an emotional connection. And in fact, in some ways, there's skepticism about a lot of the right. Europe-Ukraine stuff. So I think that's where things would end up. You know, what the individual candidates would do, I, I don't know. Obviously, President Trump. He's gonna. He would pursue his own. I mean, we're quite of, familiar with, with, yeah. with Trump's yeah. approach. I mean, man, I mean, the, the saturation that you. But yeah. What is your understanding of governors? The scientists. Well, I mean, look. At, I, you know. I mean, he's getting a lot of flack for. I mean, or at least from some quarters on his Ukraine comments, territorial conflict, whatever. But for, what is your understanding? Like, what is a nuanced, well, objective yeah. understanding of governors, the scientists? Yeah. Foreign policy. Well, I thinking. think what he's saying makes a ton of sense, which is, I mean, he said the other day we should have a Pacific first policy. Uh huh. We okay. uh, focus on China. He, uh -huh. When he was in Japan, he said um, in his press conference with Prime Minister Kishida, and I think he had an interview with Nikkei, he's, he lauded the right. uh, efforts by uh, Japan to strengthen its defenses. He may have even mentioned the Philippines, I can't remember. Right. But certainly a positive attitude, attitude towards allies, especially ones that are pulling their weight. He's, right. I think, indicate, you know, he's drawn attention to the limits of our defense industrial base, the need for our European allies to step up. So, again, it, to me, it's like, and if you look at his book, for instance, right. he's very critical of President Bush's second inaugural and this whole attitude of kind of transforming the world. Millenarian. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, to me, that's the, that's the right foreign policy approach for so what we think want. So you think Governor DeSantis appreciates the shift in the geopolitical reality that we're facing. Certainly, yeah. I, that's every every indicator. Yeah, I mean, every indicator I can see. Yes, I would say. Um, and I think, you know, what exactly he would pursue, I don't I don't know. I mean, he hasn't, we haven't gotten to that stage of a campaign where that's become, and of course, it's cu customary in presidential campaigns not to get into too much detail. Right. I, I don't want to put the other. But spot, I think, but I yeah, think yeah. the biggest thing and the point that I'm always making is 
the person who wins the presidency in November 2024 will be president in the year 2027. Right. So we don't know. I mean, you know, those of us. You mean the, the Taiwan deadline thing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, yeah. you don't. Nobody knows. But you'd better be ready. And yeah. that that person. That Which person, is the Pottinger position, right? Better be ready, even if you. Well, my, you know, you Matt and I have tremendous respect for, and yeah. I've said this to him personally. I, Matt and I have a different view on the Ukraine situation. Sure. Matt is closer to the, the kind of traditional neoconservative view and wants to double the defense budget. I don't think that's realistic. It's realistic, not happening yeah. in the debt ceiling, um, and I think we need to really focus on China. What I would say about 2027, though, is the United States. We have we have lost some wars. Those the wars that we have lost, we essentially decided to give up pacification efforts after a while or the battle with the Vietnamese. We have never lost a major war against a direct rival or competitor. And China's yet to win a single war against anyone in recent memory. Well, they did fight us to a standstill in Korea. Um, But they didn't do well against Vietnam. Uh, That's true. That's true. But I mean, (laughs) we didn't do so well against Vietnam either. So I think think the person who becomes president, whether it's President Biden or a Republican, I hope it's a Republican, that person, the buck stops here, as Harry S. Truman said. You right. do not want to be the first president to lose a major war in American history. And yeah. I think that's going to concentrate minds. And potentially the most decisive conflict exactly. of our era. Yeah, since I think, well, I mean, the Cold War, the European balance, been since the Second World War. On that note, thank you very much. Thank Elders you. Quality. That was fantastic. Pleasure. Yeah. Was I was just the uh, opening act in the whole series of conversation. <laughs> well, we you're, we're, t- we're similar when you get us going. I know. You I know, know what I mean? I, I just realized I, really enjoyed I, it. I, I got even more excited towards like, <laughs> Uh, past fourth to fifth minute or something like that. Yeah, yeah. thank you. We very started much. talking about Niebuhr yeah. and Morgenthau. And and I mean, Gramsci. I yeah, yeah I well, that's whenever great. I bring Gramsci, people get very excited. But I forgot about this position thing. I think position war is huge. of position versus yeah. war. Of, that's everything. There's always that maneuver helps. is maneuver is over right. is exaggerated. Definitely. Oh, maybe you want to stick with us oh, for okay. a while. Catch us again next week here on uh, One News. You can also check out the long conversation on Spotify, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. I'm Richard Hidarian, and that is the view from. Manila. We're one news, all sides, all the time.